Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another new episode of New Books in Islamic Studies, which is part of the New Books Network. I am one of your co-hosts, Shobhana Xavier. I hope you are staying well and safe wherever you are, and thank you so much for joining us today. In today's episode, we are joined by Tina Prohet, who is an Associate Professor of Religion, South Asian Studies, and Islamic Studies at Boston University to discuss her new book, Sunni Chauvinism and the Roots of Muslim Modernism, which is published by Princeton University Press and came out and will be coming out um, in May of 2023. Prohut's new book maps how Muslim modernists from the 19th to the 20th centuries use their Sunni bias to construct social and political boundaries around conceptions of Tawheed or Islamic unity. The book is distinctive in that it focuses on how Muslim modernists, such as Jamal al-Din Afghani, Muhammad Abdu, Rashid Buddha, and many others, were focused on communities such as Shis, Ismailis, Ahmadis, and Baha'is in their activist and intellectual projects around imagining a singular Islam in light of an encroaching Western modernism or modernity. For Muslim modernists who were anxious to reclaim um, a lost unity of Islam that perhaps existed in the past and could be aspired to again in the future, non-Sunni groups like Ahmadis for Muhammad Iqbal or esoteric groups for figures like Rashid Vidda became communities that received disparaging attention and even attitudes of intolerance that led to a particular Sunni chauvinism, Prohit argues. And as such, this obsession with unity um, and the privileging of Sunnism that went with it was found in all forms of modern Muslim modernism. This book uh, will be of interest to those who think and write on modern uh, Muslim modernism. It will also be a great teaching resource for undergraduate and graduate classes. It is really accessibly written um, and well organized. In our conversation today, Tina and I spoke about her intellectual journey that led to the writing of this book, particularly how some of the questions that she's engaging with are continuities from her earlier work on the Aga Khan case and religion identity in colonial India. Um, and we spoke about the ways in which esoteric groups like Ismailis, Sufis are really receiving complicated attention from Muslim modernists um, such as um, Afghani, Abdu, Ridda, Maududi, and many others, and how those responses are at times framed as theological responses, but the more you dive into some of their writings, you note that they perhaps are really coming from places of personal anxieties, personal responses, or even, you know, uh, moments of jealousy. So it's quite complicated. Um, so without further ado, uh, please check out our conversation uh, about the new book, Sunni Sovereignism and the Roots of Muslim Modernism. Hi, Tina. Thank you so much for joining us on New Books in Islamic Studies. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me, Shobna. Um, it's such a pleasure, and I'm really excited to talk to you about your new book, uh, Sunni Chauvinism and the Roots of Muslim Modernism, which just came out. So congratulations to you. Um, we have a tradition. Sorry to interrupt you, but it hasn't officially, so May 16th is its official show. Okay, so um, it'll be out in a couple of weeks then, because we're recording this at the end of, May, uh, of April. So this is like a nice little preview. This is awesome. Um, but... Um, as you know, in the New Books in Islamic Studies Network, we have a tradition of asking a little bit about your intellectual journey. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about um, what your journey was and particularly what led to writing this particular moment, uh, this book at this moment in your career. Yeah, thank you. Um, this is a really great um, time to reflect um, on, on some of the connections. I think, you know, with my graduates, starting with graduate school, school into the first book and second book, because I can really sort of um, 
think about, I can really sort of see a trajectory. Um, you know, like now it's now it's more and more accepted these days. A lot of people have, are coming to Islamic studies via South Asia, um, and that's that's really where I was, and that was a little bit more unusual, you know, back um, when I was in grad school. But um, I felt like I had these two sort of um, parallel paths that connected with the first book. The first was my training in languages and literatures, Indian vernacular languages and literatures. Um, and then in grad school and writing my PhD, I was really interested in the Bhakti movement, Hindu-Muslim encounter in particular. Um, I was also, you know, at Columbia in <clears throat> the early 2000s, late 90s, late 90s. And um, there was also a lot of subaltern history and South Asian, South Asian history and historiography. And that was really um taking off at the time. And so the first book that I wrote, the Aga Khan case, Religion, Ident Religion, Identity in Colonial India, was really brought together these two sort of frameworks, the historical, historiographical one, as well as the religious encounter questions um, with the study of devotional literature. And that came together in the study of the Ismaili Muslim community in colonial India in the 19th century. And um, it was at that time that I was studying the Ginans, the religious texts of the Koja Ismaili community, um, as well as you know trying to figure out like what was happening with all of their divisions and and changes and shifts that were happening in colonial India at the time, and um, it was really during that during the 19th century where the Ismaili community became identified uh, kind of formally and officially as a sect of Islam. And that had to do with a series of, um, you know, court cases in the in the Muslim community in, amongst the Kojas themselves. And so the reason why I'm bringing all of this up, you know, this is my first book, is because I kind of conceptually got hooked on this term sect, and was really curious about um, the ways that it gets used and applied in the study of Islam, um, and what are the ways in which it doesn't necessarily, its standard definition doesn't really map onto a tradition, you know, where we don't have in, in, in the history of Islam, the equivalent of a church. And so therefore don't really have the equivalent of a sect. Yet it's a term that we use all the time, right? And so, um, and it's a term that, um, that really was applied to the Ismaili community at that particular moment when the judge in a, in a colonial court case, known as the Khan case, decided um, that the Ismaili, um, Ismaili community, the Kojas, a caste group, uh, were in fact an Ismaili, were the Ismaili sect of Islam and used that language. So it was really at that time that I started to, you know, think about that question, like what is a sect? And um, and then after that, after the book came out in 2012, I started um, teaching and reading a lot more about um, the modernist movement. I got interested in the Aga Khan, um, the third Aga Khan, who was a, a a big leader in the Muslim community and um and, and some of his writings. But then I started teaching classes on modern Islam and I became really uh, drawn to the modernists, right? A particular group of um political and intellectual leaders in the 20th and 19th centuries. And I started to like kind of look at reader after reader introduction to modern Islam, modernist studies, all of these things. And there seemed to be this kind of canon of um, thinkers, right? It was like, and many of whom are in my own book, right? So um, Afghani, Abdul Rashid Rida, like this sort of Syed Ahmed Khan. And I always thought to myself, well, you know, something like the Aga Khan was actually a modernist leader too. Like, why doesn't why don't his interventions make it in? So um, that was, you know, some of the some of the starting questions um, for for the book, and it really started about an interest in the modernist movement, um, having to do with its occlusions, meaning some of the, like why are some people left out? Um, on the one hand, and on the other hand, it had to do with some strange parallels that I was seeing when I was teaching about, let's say, um, uh, Muhammad Abdu or um, Sayyid Ahmed Khan or Muhammad Iqbal, and I said, oh, there's this kind of like uniformity, this way in which they were talking about Islam, like Islam as, a, as, as unity, as a cohesive tradition. And, and so I was like, this is strange, this is happening in different geographic contexts. And so I started exploring um, those some of those co connections and some of the ways in which these modernists were starting were writing about Islam as a unified tradition. So that's where it started. 
that really is helpful, especially, and also makes sense in terms of some of the work that you do in the book, which I think is fabulous. And I think really, I think um, the piece on the Sunni bias and in terms of how these thinkers are thinking about, um, you know, my, minority Muslim communities is really, really fascinating and Ismailis show up a lot. Um, so perhaps what we could do, there's a few pieces, moving pieces in this book and in the introduction, you set up kind of the broader interventions that you're making. I wonder if you could help us think through some of these pieces. I know one is, as you've already mentioned, is um, the modernist thinkers. So you're kind of engaging with the 1850s to 1950s. You have early, middle, late. And I think this wonderful thread that you're really helping us, like weaving cohesively is this idea of Tawheed, unity. How are they conceptualizing this idea of Tawheed? And perhaps how is this conceptualization itself um, biased based on their Sunni perspective. So I, can you walk us through some of these pieces so then we can start talking about some of these figures that you're engaging with? Ah, sure, yeah. Um, so I was um, trying to think about, you know, as I said, as I started doing my preliminary research on some of these thinkers and, and some of their, you know, the, the, the writings of what I call the canonical modernists, those are the modernists who kind of, you know, have been making into all of the readers. So that would be like Afghani, Abdu'l-Ridda, um, Sayyid Ahmed Khan and Iqbal, right? So, you know, I was reading around and reading in their writings and I was trying to like look at some of the connections and this word that that kept reappearing in their writings as I would, you know, read about their writings about Islam um, was Tawheed, right? And we, those of us in Islamic studies obviously know what this means and, um, you know, the Quranic idea of the unicity of God. Um, but it rarely had that sort of meaning in their writings. And so what I was what I was discovering is that more and more um, I thought that Tawhid came to represent this idea of unity, but social and political unity rather than a sort of theological idea. Like even Muhammad Abdul, when he writes this piece called Theology of Unity, it's really interesting because he sort of introduces this concept Tawhid. And he says this is, you know, the, the idea of the unicity of God, blah, blah, blah. But he quickly moves into a very different kind of discussion, which is really about, you know, the divisions and um, the, the sort of the fracturing of Tawheed that is kind of, that is happening, you know, in front of him. And so what I started to see is that, okay, that's just one example, but that Tawheed sort of um, came to mean social and political unity, but it had a particular nuance which was, and it's the term that I use in the book, um, a, a sort of bifurcated function. And what I mean by that is sort of like two different kind of ways, two different meanings. One is that Tawheed existed in the past, a sort of like a perfect unified Muslim community, and that there's a potential for it to exist in the future, but it doesn't exist in the present. So Tawheed so is put social and political unity for these modernists, and I can I track this idea in their different writings, comes to uh, represent this desire or almost an anxiety for something that doesn't exist, right? And so um, I talk about how Tawheed um, is something that's understood as fractured, as, 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 as something that needs fixing, and so there are two main components around Tawheed, this bifurcated idea of Tawheed, meaning like an ideal past and something to look forward to in the future, but not as a present. There are two problems, um, according to these modernists, and one has to do with what they would like call accretions, right, to the religion. Um, and again, I'm going to turn to Muhammad Abdi's example in that same piece, Theology of Unity, he talks about how um, you know, there was this ideal period with the Rashidun Caliphate, and then as we like track it, and then as time went on, slowly the community started to like, you know, break apart. Um, and, you know, and at one point he's like, what are all of these accretions? You know, what are all of these, uh, you know, these 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 new practices? And, and accretions are what? It's like that, that idea of the layering of new practices that have been artificially added on to the tradition and that need to be sort of pulled apart to capture that original unity, right? So social accretions that are religious practices that that that, de that seem to deviate in some form from the original, and that's one source of anxiety around Tawhid. And the other is leadership. And you know, I think in general, um, 
there in the writings, there's this assumption that, you know, after the death of Muhammad, um, you know, there's never, there has never been a, a leader to sort of take over or, 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 you know, there's a crisis of leadership, let's just say. And so there's a lot of writings about the anxiety of leadership. And, and that's where a lot of the, um, um, the criticisms come in of these other communities, um, the minority communities that I'm talking that I talk about in the book, um, <clears throat> and I think that that is one kind of component of where that um, where the sort of um, where the writings of these modernists, what they a lot of them share, is directing their anxieties towards these communities that actually have leadership. So that would be, for example, you know, the Amadees or um, the Ismailis. They start to become the sort of center of attention in terms of these more in terms of the canonical modernist criticisms, and that's like um, another component. So Talhid is really um, at the center of of this discussion, and it really is what um, what connects the different modernists that I study over this time period from the, the eighteen. 1850s to the 1950s. I really, I think, I really appreciated kind of the mapping that you did and the way that you weaved Talhi together. And I just kind of was blown away. As you're kind of saying, a lot of it is presented as these logics and rationales, but some of them are just these personal anxieties and perhaps eco responses. Like, oh, I don't have that attention the way that this guy has an attention. So therefore I have an issue with this community. You know what I mean? And not to belittle it in that way, but I think it was quite humanizing to read the way that you mapped some of the this concept across these different thinkers, right? Um, that you're like, oh, it's not really a theological issue. It's a you issue. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. yeah, framed as a theological issue, but just definitely like political or just general kind of personal grievance kind of Thing. Exactly. Or jealousy. Let's just put it that way sometimes. Exactly. Jealousy. Yeah. I mean, well, talking about jealousy, we could start with Afghani as, as the kind of the first figure that you um, engage with in chapter one as like an early figure. Um, and so you're doing an interesting work here. So you're really mapping this word. And I feel like I'm going to say it wrong. Is it Nicheri or Nicheri? That's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so this writing um, and this word that he has that you're kind of mapping is potentially a pejorative or a derogatory term that he's using against maybe communities like Zoroastrians or Baha'is or Ismailis um, and some followers of um, Said Ahmed Khan as well. And so uh, how how is this kind of, I guess, boundary is, you know, Afghani building this boundary around this particular word, which I think I saw in the book both translated as naturalist or materialist, I think we're, if I'm correct. Um, and so, but he was really using this word to have kind of a theological kind of boundary building around certain communities that he found perhaps, again, as you're saying, outside kind of the Sunni normativity that he's trying to build as like what constitutes that, um, a singular Islam. Yeah, yeah. So Ashkani is like the biggest to me, the biggest mystery out of all of them in some way. He because he's he's such a like he was such a chameleon and a politician, and as you could tell from that chapter, moved in so many different like political circles, took assumed so many different positions. Um, you know, in terms of you know, in terms of what he was trying to angle for uh, the ways in which he was trying to angle for himself, right? Um, so I think in some ways it's really hard to like read his argument as a theological polemic, right? Like that he really like takes issue as if he like really takes issue on some sort of, um, you know, a theological Sunni. First of all, he's a Shia himself, right? And so, and he sort of dissimulates that and covers that. Um, but also like by way of the background, um, he was very much shaped by a lot of these um these kind of what I call esoteric traditions uh, and and was steeped in them like in his formation and even by the time that you know the time that he was he spent in Egypt um, when he was um, part of the Urabi revolt and um, he was really like and he was part of these like you know Masonic temples and lodges and a lot of the language he was using was really drawn from you know some of these early 
kind of um, esoteric traditions of early Babism and early Baha'ism, and he was, and even a lot of early Islamism that he was, he was, you know, familiar with from his upbringing. So he was very much a politician, kind of using terms as he saw fit, you know, at certain times. But in terms of the time in India and the the crazy polemic against Sayyid Ahmed Khan. Right, in terms of like where is this coming from and why is it so like you know, um, why is it so steeped in this kind of antipathy? Um, it's interesting because you know, I this is a one way thing. I don't think Sayyid Ahmed Khan, I don't think Afghani really registered, you know, who's that uh, on Sayyid Ahmed Khan's radar at all, but um, it. You know, I think in that case, um, this long discuss. So I do that whole discussion of Vichery to, to first of all trace how that term, which is just a made up term anyway during that time, how he uses it against different communities, right? You can see he uses it against the, like in his arguments. He's like, listen, the Nichiris have different sort of manifestations or permutations at different times in history. They're the, you know, they're the Zoroastrians, or they can be the Baha'is, or they, they're the Babis. And then um, at, at certain times he says it's the Bataniya, meaning referring to the Ismailis. But the modern Nichiris, he says in this piece, the truth about the Nichiris that is, are the followers of Sayyid Ahmed Khan. And you're just like, well, why, right? Like, why, what, why, how did this happen? And that's when I read some of those, when I read some of these, um, you know, and this material is all available. Nikki Teddy, who's a big scholar of Afghani, had written quite a bit about Afghani's sort of aspirations, um, because also during this the 19th century period, um, you know, there are people who are claiming to to are, are claiming positions of leadership around him. So for example, the Sudanese Mahdi, right? Who is the big, a very prominent figure at the time. He is, Afghani is kind of aware of him. And so when he's writing that Nichiri piece and, and some other pieces he's writing in, 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 in European journals and stuff, he's reflecting about this kind of political, on this political landscape. And really, I think, really looking for a place for himself where he can insert himself and be useful as a leader. So he makes these arguments about how, you know, the Muslim community in India, because I think he sees this as a sort of opening, is really in need of a, of a leader, right? And he makes these arguments in the papers and um you know they really could use somebody and he doesn't really go so far as to um say hey the leader should be me right because you're not one doesn't do that you have to be sort of like diplomat but there are all these ways in his writings he's suggesting that you know that that this this wise person this kind of um this exemplary human being leader um uh, sage, right? These kinds of words, like uh, the wise man, the Muslim wise man, kind of borderline prophet, but not really prophet, you know, because nobody's going to say they're they're a prophet. Um, that they that he really sees himself as fulfilling that role, that fulfilling that um that that role as as a leader of the community, and then it doesn't really it doesn't happen. So my argument there is that I read a bunch of different writings of his at different periods in in different stages in his time in Egypt, while he's you know while he's in Europe and writing from Europe, and then um, piece from India, and and I track his sort of obsession with the Nichiri, um and denouncing this community. But I really really read it as. Um, well, there's two arguments there, right? So one is that this is a theological argument. People said that. And then Nikki Ketty, who's a historian, she's already like kind of denounced it. She said, this is not really theological. This is a political argument, right? This is about Afghani making sort of political maneuvers. And I think that's right. But I, what I do add to that kind of discussion is I think that, um, you know, he has his sort of aspirations and he does for leadership and what he does is he denies and um, denounces the same communities that in fact um, whose ideas he appropriates. So that's a kind of double move that I'm, I'm sort of claiming about Afghani is that, um, you know, he uses a lot of the language from what I call these esoteric traditions. And we can talk about how that functions kind of conceptually for me. But um, he draws on that to sort of assert his own kinds of claims for authority and religious leadership. 
um, while denouncing these particular communities. And I think that's what's so fascinating in terms of mapping some of these figures' own personal histories and intellectual developments is that they are coming from these really diverse contexts where they were exposed to so many things, Sufism, esoteric thought, as you're saying. And so it's not like they're unaware of it. It's just almost that they know these traditions well enough to kind of have these responses. And I think you see something similar happening with Muhammad Abdu and his student Rashid Ridda in the next chapter as well, in chapter two, where they're really dealing again with this issue of Muslim unity. Um, and I think there, you know, again, there have these like kind of interesting responses to maybe the Baha'i faith or, um, and, you know, some of them being sympathetic to some groups and not others. So even amongst them, so you would think of kind of Afghani, um, Abdu and Ridda as part of kind of similar trajectories. You see that they're kind of selectively deciding which community to kind of say, well, this is too transgressive for us based on this particular practice, but this perhaps which also has a similar dimension of, let's say, um, continuing revelation or kind of an ongoing leadership, we're okay with this bit, you know? Um, Can I just like respond to that? Because, and it has to go with about an overarching um, argument about modernism too, because to your point, what you were just saying is that, you know, people, you know, you these, in these modernist readers or these kind of handbooks on modernism, whatever we want to call them, that have like these sort of classical modernists, they will talk about them, these figures in a lineage. And it's true, like the Afghani Abdu Riza lineage, it's a lineage, right? But they are all so different and they have all like negotiated, they all have different positions, especially and precisely around these minority and esoteric groups. And so my argument is that the study of modernism actually needs to be rethought via the esoteric and minority communities. Like we cannot assume that standard lineage or that standard narrative anymore because in fact, what we see are these very different positions and that really the minority and the esoteric really has come to, we have to rethink the whole study of modernism based on that. And I think it's a compelling, like I I could see it in this book after having read it. Like I understand that as a compelling argument and the work that you're trying to do. Um, did you want to talk a little bit more about Abdu and Rida, what you're doing in that chapter in terms sure. of like some of the responses to the Baha'is, for instance? Yeah, so maybe, but maybe if you don't mind, maybe before that, I'll sort of like kind of... Um frame what I was, um, if, we're, if, if Tawheed is one kind of big point uh, that's a sort of kind of conceptual frame, I think the esoteric is another. Right. And so that's where this plays out in this, in, where it plays out in this particular chapter. So what do I mean by the esoteric? Well, and why do I use it conceptually? Um, I think that that really comes from wanting to find uh, a way to talk about, it's sort of what you were just saying, in fact, you know, it, it's that these figures are using language and, and discourse that's just familiar to them, you know, around like Baha'ism or like I, I, Ismaili ideas or Shia ideas or Sufi ideas. That That is all like in the air and they're like using that, right? And what I mean, but, but also more specifically, it is part and parcel of the Islamic tradition, but it has been kind of written out by a Sunni normativity, right? That, you know, that we don't really, you know, we, we think about, and this is again, the problem of sect. We think about Shia Islam as a sect of Islam or Sufi Islam as a sect of Islam or, or, or Ahmadis as a sect of Islam or, you know, or whatever it is, the Ismailis. And so we see them, but, but in fact, historically they have, they actually are part of the center. They're part of fully integrated part and part of what, you know, somebody like Wilford Campbell Smith calls, and I use in this book, the cumulative tradition, right? This is the cumulative tradition. Yet um, we have to kind of separate the esoteric conceptually to get at some problems. Okay, so who are the esoteric, what are esoteric ideas or esoteric groups? In my book, or in my case study, I will call the esoteric groups um, the Ahmadis, the Ismailis, and the Baha'is, right? And they're very different, and some, you know, there are a lot of debates on, especially the Baha'is and the Ahmadis, like where they fit within Islam, whether they are part of Islam, and that kind of thing, but that's not the issue. The issue has to do with the fact of what do they Share. Well, they share um, a history where there's a lot of language that developed around um, the hidden and inner meanings of the Quran. Um, you know, the idea that there's something sort of like kind of mysterious 
that knowledge, specialized knowledge about the Quran. Um, there's ideas about prophecy that can, that's continuous prophecy, that prophecy continues in some ways after Muhammad, right, in, in whatever form. And um, they share that um, in terms of their, their, their beliefs. But what they actually kind of structurally share, all of these groups, are kind of the, their development of having established themselves as communities with leadership. Right, the, that they all have sort of leaders that are, and in this case, in the 19th and early 20th century, that are pretty active and successful. So you have Abdul Baha, and then you have, you know, Mirza Ghulam Ahmed, and you have the Aga Khan, and you have the leaders of these communities who are actually like thriving, you know, and 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 so I think the communities themselves are thriving, and, and they're thriving on the basis of this of this leadership, and so. The esoteric here um, has these two different components. It's one is that it's describing just literally these three groups, but it's also sort of trying to conceptually signal um, this kind of history and this past um, that is much more sort of mixed and, you know, um, for lack of a better word, non-Sunni. So going to the chapter with Abdu and Riza, um, it's really interesting because I start that chapter really with that reading of Theology of Unity um, that opens up, that again, is um, it seems like it's going to be about Telgid because it's about unity, but it ends, uh, has to do with like social decline of, of the a history of decline of the Muslim community. And what's interesting about some with somebody like um, Abdu is that you know he and um he he was he has these like very strong this goes to your point about how they all have these kind of very crazy like positions with regard to these communities and they're not really consistent with each other. So Rida really was a devotee and like disciple of Abdu, but very different in terms of his position. So Abdu was very sympathetic um with to the Baha'is. Right, and he had um, um he was very much in awe of 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 Abdul Abdul Baha and and very much supported a lot of the the work that was going on in the Baha'i community. In many ways, he was like a modernist. Right, he was very interested in the modernist programs. He was sympathetic to ideas of, of progressive revolution that Baha'is um that Baha'is endorsed. And then it was, and then it's interesting because in that dialogue that Juan Cole had translated um, between the two of them, that conversation between Riza and Abdu comes out where you see Abdu's kind of sympathy for these communities. So it's, um, but also not just the Baha'is, but also other groups like the Ismailis and also Sufis, right? And then you see in that conversation, Riza's going kind of berserk, like, how can you buy that? Like, they're just, and he uses the word propagandist. Right, he calls them propagandists, and Abdul's like, you know, he has like his sort of like, you know, wise men sorts of responses and this kind of question. And what you see in that conversation is that they really diverge, and both of them have, you know, been seen in this kind of histories of modernism as like, you know, canonical modernists of Egypt. You have, you know, Rashid, you have Muhammad Abdul and his student Rashid Rida, and then they kind of, you know, trains Hassan al-Banna, and then you get the Muslim Brotherhood, and then you have this kind of direct lineage as if, you know, these ideas are just transferred from one person to another, and they, they are in some ways. But what these discussions show is like this questions around who belongs and who doesn't belong um, are very charged. And something like Riza has really strong positions. And, you know, I don't really know why. I mean, I reflect on it and I use some sort of, sort of theories that are out there, um, you know, in terms of his own positions and stuff. But, so you know, very different, of course, from, from, from Abdu and his sort of openness that he really brings and his generosity he brings in terms of his reading. But then on the other hand, what's strange about the Theology of Unity piece is he has this, the moment in which the decline starts, right, when he gives his account of like the Rashidun Caliph, as soon as we get to the fourth Caliph, that's the period where everything gets broken. So he really attributes Shiism as like the moment in history where everything falls apart. Um, or you know, once 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 you have that, that's when that's when the split and that's when all the fracturing you know starts. And so he does have his. I guess my point there is that he does have his sort of anti-Shia bias, but in that conversation, and you can see it very clearly in theology of unity. But in that conversation with Riza, 
they're going back and forth and you see like, wow, he really is open and he, he's very much shaped by, he, and you can tell in his own writings, he's very much shaped by Baha'i ideas of like progressive revelation. People have, you know, there are multiple rev revelations that come at different times and, uh, you know, and that sort of thing. And, and teachers, charismatic and leaders, so people can impart knowledge to the people and, you know, and, and that is possible. And that's what Rita just does not have any time for. You know, you cannot have a mediating role. You can't have a mediator. You can't have somebody between God and the people, right? And that's what Abdul is going on and trying to kind of convince them of that it is possible. Yeah, and I really, like, one of the things I really loved about this chapter is, like, Ridha's, like, he went to the Sufi gathering, the Mevlavi gathering, and he just, like, panicked and was like, screw this, and left. And I just was like, yeah. And so, again, I think it's, like, really interesting, like, this anxiety around leadership and also this anxiety around kind of continued revelation in some kind of esoteric mystical way or Bhatini like inner inner dimension way is just like not okay and so part of it makes sense from a modernist perspective of like really negotiating with west and rationalism and all that stuff I would, I would imagine but yeah it is they're they're almost always I mean in this chapter particularly as someone who thinks a lot about Sufism I could see that they're almost like trying to go to the edge of it trying to really explore it and then like no like you know this is not it's not okay like I gotta get out of here and again it's not consistent across all of them either right because they are leaning into it in some ways in terms of their own authority or their own kind of you know rationale or whatever right um but it's like interesting for that to see the tussle of it in some instances and it really came out really well with Sufism in this one I found yeah Thank you. Yeah, and it was great. Um, the other, the next chapter, again, super fascinating. And again, this kind of really consistent kind of bifurcation, uh, dissonance, kind of complication, but that's sustained, um, is with Muhammad Iqbal and then this question of the Ahmadi beliefs and also Ismailis, right? And here on the one hand, the Ismailis are okay, or the Ismaili leadership of the Aga Khan is okay because he represents this modernist you know what I mean? Like a modern leader that is like that I think they're craving for that they want a leader. And again, following this kind of prophetic tradition of there will be a leader that comes to, to renew, you know, Islam. And so I think there's this like craving for leadership. But at the same time, you have something like the Ahmadis who also have leadership, you know, in this figure of a prophet, which is obviously theologically problematic for Sunni Islam. But there's like an argument here being made of like they're backward, whereas the smileys are progressive and modern. So I wonder if you could like help flesh out some of what ha what's happening here with Muhammad Iqbal. Um, I think the context is important. I think so, you know, what's happening in South Asia at the time, I think is also informing a lot of kind of particular responses in some way. Um, but yeah, again, back to kind of these minority, you know, Muslim groups who are on the margins and are really provoking these thinkers, right, in terms of who they're supposed to be and the normativity that they're trying to sustain. Yeah, yeah. So Iqbal is, you know, gosh, so many people have written on Iqbal, right? And, and so people have actually, you know, a lot of people have written on this position of um, Iqbal, what he, what he has to say about the Ahmadis, and clearly not the first to do this. You know, Aisha Jalal, um, Iqbal, um, Singh Sivya, uh, Faisal Devji, these people have all like kind of reflected on this kind of weird, this like very anti um, anti Amity polemic come from. And again, I think Aisha Jalal would really say that it comes out of a sort of politics, sort of 1930s politics, um, where he's, you know, sitting on, on, on these different committees and he's kind of, you know, working through his like political positions and things like that. And I think there's always like, the, you know, there's a kind of a political, very obviously very um, um, active political landscape that's happening at the time. I think that, um, you know, the angle that I'm trying to go with in that chapter um, is really acknowledging that, you know, there is certainly, um, you know, a sort of a political positions and things like that. Um, but it's really trying to get at what what is it that just really kind of um, gets under the skin, like in almost in a like a very kind of deep personal level, you know, um, because I think that we can all like the like oh so I would say the parallel would be you know the political readings um, that say Nikki Kennedy gives about Afghani right that there's like the political motivations which are not theological problems these are politically motivated right so the guy should tell this is like politically motivated these aren't like theological issues and I, I agree with all of that um, but I think that the layer the layers the layer I'm trying to get at in that particular discussion 
um, is how, um, I suppose, first of all, it's interesting because um, Iqbal's family had a very close connection um, with um, with Mirza Ghulam Ahmed's family, right? So we know that there's some certain members of Iqbal's family who had actually like taken the bayat um, of, of Mirza Ghulam Ahmed. And, um, and so, you know, there, there's, a, it's kind of, it was in the mix, right? Um, that that he was in the mix. This this figure in a in a very active religious sense. So there was that familiarity there already. Um, but I think that you know the angle that okay. So what am I bringing the view to this conversation? I think that it's really this um, discussion of the backwardness, right? And I think that's what I was trying to like really get at um, in some ways, like what are the ways in what, what is the problem? And it really has to do with this idea of, um, of, of progress and, and, and modernity and, you know, and, and, and the community, again, the looking forward, if we take this idea of Tawheed and unity, the unity comes um, and he writes very, very beautifully on this idea of Tawheed. He's almost like the most poetic and the most like, you know, literal, like it's, it's, it's incredibly moving prose around this idea of Tawheed. And, but the, but the function is the same, the same bifurcation. We had this great Tawheed in the past and like we have this possibility in the future, but right now there is a problem. And the problem is that the unity, that the community is divided. So, now, now, what? Where does Mirza Ghulam Ahmed fit into this? Well, he is really the problem, right? Or really a big part of the problem because there are these people or leaders who are holding the Muslim community back, right? They are they are holding them back and they are preventing them. And so I analyze his writings and I especially talk about the accusations of Mirza Ghulam Ahmed being a Magian. So it's this idea of a, a, a past, like a, 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 superstitious, a superstitious past where, um, you know, people are um, a retrograde past where people are drawn to some, like these old practices or these backward practices. And he is somebody who's perpetuating that, right? Um, and uh, that by this sort of devotion to him. So he makes all the standard arguments, like there can't be a prop, you know, the sort of um, the end of prophecy and that sort of thing. But I think there's something a little bit deeper about the sort of modernist program and the modernist agenda that um, that he sees me as a guru and that really kind of like, um, bumping up against and holding the people back. And in the Aga Khan, the, the Islamic comparison is really, um, it's really short, right? It's it's just, it's, it's I, I make it into a big discussion in my writings, but the whole piece is an anti-Amity polemic um, that he writes that Leda Modudi picks up. But um, the piece of the, the Ismaili's um, kind of reflection is really something that he just tacks on at the end um, of that piece where he's like, you know, some people say that, you know, there are all these groups out there that are doing this. And let me just tell you, this one group that people think that may be sort of remotely connected to the Amadis, the Ismailis, let me tell you, they are nothing. Right. And what's so nothing like the Amadis. And what is so interesting about that move, because that is some sort of like strange sectarian comparison that he's drawing in his head to begin with. And then he reflects on all the ways in which the Ismailis um, and the Aga Khan endorse this sort of progressive Sunni Islam and that they are so forward, you know, facing and looking like basically the direction of Tawheed. Um, and so you know, which is interesting because there's this thing that I say in the book, which is like, I mean, the Aga Khan was very much like, you know, into integration and 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 this sort of things. And he would never like, uh, probably never have denounced, you know, or been so kind of um, polemical the way um, Mirza Gulen Ahmed was um, in terms of his, his stance. He was much more integrative, um, you know, in terms of a public face. But it's, what, what is so interesting is the way Iqbal completely misreads and distorts, really, Ismaili religiosity, right? Claiming that they, yeah, they may be Shia, or they may be doing this 12 or thing, but, or this Ismaili thing, um, but really, like, they endorse the five pillars and they're really just like one of us, you know? And that was so interesting for me to read that they were like the keepers of Sunni Islam in some way. Like, he just kind of said it, like, nonchalantly and moved on. And I was like, yeah. wait, what? 
<laughs> and it's the closing, it's like the strangest thing is the longest piece is like this last paragraph. It's like kind of like, by the way, kind of thing. And that's what I was really fascinated by. Yeah, I mean, it definitely stood out for me. And I think this argument you're making of progress and modernity and the way in which the Aga Khan was facing in terms of his relationship with the British and all of this stuff and his policies of integration, there is an argument, I could see the argument here being very clear that there's something about the Aga Khan and the Ismaili case as like a progressive community that's very compelling to him. Whereas, you know, with the Ahmadis perhaps represent this other aspect as he's you know saying it's backward and so yeah it was like a really interesting kind of dynamic and logic to see unfold um and so it was really kind of stood out for me in this chapter as well because um, it's and, and I think I would say like village like backward and village you know right. and I think that's that's you know that's what it was like these people are just very village you know and that and, and like if you're going to get with the program it's going to be something you know much more forward looking but going back to that prophecy point I mean just um I Sorry, one thing I did want to say um, that we were talking about, in, and this is sort of a parallel with the Abdu chapter, is like how they're all kind of hitting up really close against Sufism, and then they they push back, or you know, and so that was the whole this one of the big threads of his argument in that in that Amity piece, where anti Amity piece, where he says, you know. Um, it's not like I have a problem with people who are, you know, um, who with people who have like prophetic experiences you know but it's it, it, so he talks about how his sort of sympathies for like and, and he was very Sufi sympathetic right so it's interesting that in, in many of his ideas were very much shaped by Sufism right and that's why he really drew from that that tradition but when it comes to the Amadis, there's nothing Sufi, like for that, for him, it's like they're just a separate community. It's not like mystical, it's not esoteric. It's just sort of, it's just backward, you know? And so they, they the Sufism for him is some sort of like, you know, kind of cerebral, intellectual, kind of high tradition um, and that he's drawn to and he's sympathetic to and he's interested in playing around with ideas of prophecy, but not the sort of, not a continuous prophecy um, leadership claim that somebody like Mirza Gulanam makes. It makes me wonder how much there's like a class bias that he's not aware of. Do you know what I mean? Like in terms of thinking about what's unfolding that he himself is perhaps, you know, subconsciously projecting onto what looks like progressive a way of life, which is kind of this, you know, rep ideas of particular perceptions and modernity of how one dresses and how one shows up versus like how he's, you know, associating village life to not being progressive because of a particular class bias. But yeah, it's really, I mean, it's really unfortunate. Definitely the most, um, I think he, because he did his PhD in Europe, he was definitely the most cosmopolitan of all of the modernists. I mean, certainly, you know, Mirza Ahmed, I think he, you know, barely spoke English, right? Um, but somebody like Iqbal did his PhD like in Europe and, you know, very, I mean, because all of the, the the canonical modernists were very European, Europe for Europe facing and informed, but he really like did it, <laughs> you know, did his PhD there and was informed by all of the, you know, history of, of, of you know, Nietzsche, Bergson and, you know, Spengler and all these people that are like informing his writings, you know, so much more, most cosmopolitan, I would say, of all of them. So interesting. Um, the last substantive chapter before kind of a concluding chapter is on um, Maududi and the Islamic State. Um, this is really interesting because you also do bring in Said Qutub as well. And there's like this interesting tension that you're mapping out um, uh, with modernism and Islamism. Right, which I wasn't expecting because you know we were going towards kind of late modern thinkers and um and so yeah here the question is really of an Islamic state and who fits within the Islamic state according to Maududi um and of course a lot of this stuff is also something Said Qutb is thinking about in the context of Egypt and the Muslim Brotherhood um but yeah so how would you perhaps what are you trying to do here in terms of setting up these two figures but also particularly helping us think about maybe like a, the relationship between modernism and islamism if i kind of i'm picking that, that up correctly uh, um, yeah yeah that, no, definitely um that is really the um kind of 
um, question because I, again, going back to sort of classic definitions and breakdowns and um, we have, you know, modernism and then Islamism, right? Like kind of two different ideas related and, and you know, and one building from the other and all these people have like written on that. You've been, Marquez, you've been some on all these, you know, people are talking about Islamism um, as a different, as a different type of movement in many ways. And it is, I completely agree. The only reason why I wanted to situate Modi as as a modernist or what I would call late modernist is because I wanted to sort of uh, look at the continuity of ideas and how they develop and how we see some of the same um, kind of formulations at work even as we move into the Islamist moment. So going back to the Tawhid idea, um, I track it in in Modi's writings as kind of again functioning pretty much the same way that had functioned, you know, um, with the earlier modernists as having this sort of like bifurcated um, cast. So turning, looking towards the past, and then looking towards the future, and then the present being sort of. Um, you know, fractured or broken. Um, the difference, of course, in the late modernist or what we would call Islamist period is that uh, the state is very much at the center of um, and, and a new concern. And that's how we would like think about late modernism and distinguish it from, let's say, the middle period where where somebody like Iqbal or um, Rashid Rida are not really, I mean, they're thinking about the state, definitely. They're thinking, like, they're thinking about nationalism, let's put it that way. Um, whereas earlier modernists are not, right? They're not they're like um, like Afghani, um, even Abdul, not like really thinking about the state um, and nationalism. But what we have um, by the late modernist period are these figures who are really focus on the nation state because they are living in a moment where the nation state is emerging, right? It's decolonization in Egypt. Um, it's 1947, right? Modi it's the transition and the creation of, of Pakistan, so it's pre and post. So the nation state is very much at the at the foreground. And so this idea of Tawhid really becomes actualized with these later writers with the in the form of the state um and so when that happens the sort of boundaries become charged in a new way defined in a new way because you can actually create have nation state boundaries you can decide who is within who belongs within and who belongs outside the nation and so what i do with the md issue is trace that logic that gets started with Iqbal, I even look at how Iqbal's writing, some of Iqbal's thinking gets picked up in Maldives writings and how, but yet Iqbal doesn't talk about, you know, the, the national belonging, right? He talks about the enemies as a community, not necessarily like whether they are, you know, a minority or a majority of the state. And so where that question gets picked up um, with Maududi in a new form because the state is very much um, at the center and, you know, actually newly formed. And so it's really easy to say, okay, we'll talk about the Muslim state, um, Muslim country, and then, you know, if 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 Amadis are not Muslim, like, what does that mean, right? And then we have this idea of nation-state belonging. But the other parallel that I try to trace back with Maududi to the other modern, and that's also why I want to put him in the modernist a little bit, um, or kind of draw connections with his, with the earlier modernist is again, the leadership aspirations. So he's another figure who like, who like um, Afghani kind of talks about how there's this need for a Nazi, right? And, 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 uh, and, you know, as somebody who's going to revolutionize um you know society and you know and then he sort of writes about what this person would look like and how this person would be a modern man not really a traditional man and would respond to the needs and and the, all of these things like sort of like you know open like kind of suggesting without making explicit like hey look who's a real contender for this like leadership position so that's another kind of phenomenon i was sort of trying to introduce um, with with Maududi in terms of that's why I was trying to 
bring much more because he's always been seen as a sort of like as the foundational Islamist thinker and then shaping Kutub and all of that. But I wanted to look at that some of those aspirations, um, leadership aspirations that that sort of get laid out there. Um, and 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 yeah, so I that that was part of why I wanted to make those connections um, to the earlier modernists. So I'm not trying to say Modi is a modernist and non-Islamist. I don't want to make that argument. I just wanted to like that's not that important or interesting. It's to say like let's just see some of the continuities to the to these other people that I'm looking at. And I think that's so helpful because I think one of the uh, fascinating, uh, like important contribution, at least for me, or what I found useful about the book is precisely yeah. this broader genealogy, like a bigger picture, as opposed to, I think we're so used to studying these figures in, in silos sometimes. And so it's helpful to kind of use actually a thread, like a conceptual thread, like Tawheed and map it through and see how they're engaging and responding. Well, that's been one of the kind of questions from, you know, like to sort of I don't know if this is the right medium to say something like this, but it's like, you know, people say, well, what are your original sources? Well, I can't really say I'm, I'm not unearthing new archives. And these are, these are class, these are classical treatises and texts that all of these thinkers have actually written about. I don't have all this, this new material that I'm unearthing or anything like that. I'm just kind of like putting to putting them together in a conversation, putting them together in a way to create a conversation and track these comparisons mm -hmm. um, that hasn't been done to, before to make a, an argument, you know? So like I thought, you know, going back to just the intellectual journey piece of things, I mean, when I first started writing this book, I thought it was a book about modernism. And so when I was workshopping it and sending out to people, like, this is about modernity in Islam. And and then the you know people like publishers said, well, not really, you know, this is because like what that's too big and doesn't necessarily, you know, so I was kind of flipping around quite a bit trying and then finally I was like oh wait no I'm trying to make an argument I'm, I'm trying to like make a new kind of argument based on classical thinkers and classical pieces that everybody knows right yeah no I think it's just like this mapping that you've done for us like you've you've been you know swimming in all of this you've mapped it out for us and it's really an opportunity for the reader to kind of deep dive and think through and like treat these as individual people, treat these as humans in their social and political contexts, but also think about how they're contributing to this bigger idea, which I think really is important to, you know, and I, I love it because of the idea of Sunni chauvinism, I think that's a great kind of, you know, framework of thinking about some of the boundaries um, and like, and responses to transgressions that are being constructed here, right? And I think that's so important. And as someone who thinks a lot about Sufism, I think this is what was really compelling for me about the book is like thinking about why are these figures so um so much um you know um heated response to Sufism or any kind of esoteric movement like where is that coming from and so to kind of see that play out at least for me as a reader I was like oh like you know got me thinking and so I really appreciated like the responses to Ibn al-Arabi or like why are they having this issue with this particular institutional structure of Sufism and from a modernist perspective yeah I could I could see why that's working out right or why it's playing out even though some of these figures are coming from Sufi families or Sufi adjacent families or were exposed to Sufism by an uncle or a teacher or whatever right and so I think those are the details that I found particularly compelling and fascinating for me to have it all together in one space um so the last chapter is a really interesting chapter and it kind of shifts towards kind of the post-colonial context um, and you're um, it's like I think a broader conclusion to the book as well and you're thinking about like Fasal Rahman, Great um, Isaac, Ali Shriati um, and really thinking about how they are approaching ideas of Tawheed but from a place of ethics like mm -hmm. anti-oppressive ethics as I'm thinking about Farid Isak and the South Asian context or Ali Shariati and kind of his response to Iran and a Marxist kind of, you know, um, response to some of the things that are happening in Iran or Fasul Rahman. So um, I'm really curious for one in terms of where this final chapter was coming from in terms of who was serving, because um, obviously I think it makes sense, but I'm like curious about, you know, um, what it is that you wanted to do maybe as an intellectual process for you to end off on this chapter um for the reader you know if that's an okay question to ask I'm actually asking out of curiosity and nothing more yeah you know I don't it, the, the concluding chapter is it was something it's interesting because it 
Yeah, it doesn't necessarily, um, you know, it doesn't have that sort of like that tight kind of parallel. I feel I was able to kind of connect from, from chapter to chapter, but like tell he was doing this particular thing and it's like operating in the same, because clearly these figures that I'm choosing at this particular moment are all like in different contexts and they're in different kind of places. Um, and the Tawhid is getting, so I think so there's a couple of things that I feel I was trying to do in this chapter. One is that I was trying to say, look, I haven't exhausted, I'm not, the point is that Tawhid is not functioning in just this one particular socio-political way. It has these other, um, you know, as, as anxiety or as unity, whatever, it has all of these different sort of, um, it has this later history, right, in terms of what it's doing. And some of it is inflected by Shiism and Shi politics, as is the case with Ali Shariati, right? Um, some of the, so it's like taking different threads of what Tawhid was doing earlier and like picking up and just kind of like ruminating on what some of those, um, the afterlife and the aftermath might be. So one has to do with this sort of the Shi'i kind of permeates, right? Because the point in the earlier chapters is that it's Sunni Chauvinism and there's a Sunni normative bias. But here we say, wait, wait, hold on. We have um, a kind of specifically Shi kind of um, um, co-option of this term. Um, in the case of Ali Shariati, we have um, the South African um, sort of anti-apartheid struggle um, of a Muslim minority community that's kind of using this term in a particular way, you know, in the, but you know, again, also ethics, like this idea of ethics and justice. This is, these are the sort of questioning, questions that I feel like are animating the post-colonial situation, right? Um, in terms of how do we make sense of, of, of the world in these different contexts. So these are just sort of like, just little slivers here and there. Um, it's like, what are the sort of vestiges and what are the remnants of that idea and, and what kinds of after, what, what has sort of developed since that? So it was just a chance to give um, a sort of reflection. So I did the piece on South Africa and then a little bit on, on Iran and then a little bit even in like um, Fazlur Rahman's writings. And then we and I looked at, at how in fact he too carried some of that, you know, anti-Batania kind of, thinking and stuff like that, you know, that still, um, that, that still continues. And then I guess the part about Al-Qaeda was almost the, the little bit of the risk there because um, I was looking at the term Tawhid in the, in the writings of um, Osama bin Laden and, and Al-Qaeda. And the point there is to say that, look, um, and that too, I think in some ways could be understood as a quote unquote ethical project. Um, but that the the term Tawhid and all of its permutations, um, I think it started off as something aspirational. Started as something about justice and that some of that, you know, making a corrective of some kind, right? For the modernists, let's make things right through Tawhid, and I think that continued in the post-colonial period with these examples. Um, but then it also had this reactionary turn. Right with with a group like Al Qaeda, where this idea of Tawhid as unity, um, you know, very much like anti Shia, anti, you know, it, which we'll see late, which we see later in the sort of like if you take the aftermath of something like Al Qaeda into ISIS, right? Just you have really anti Shia stuff. So that idea of Tawhid really continues as social and political unity, but it moves in different directions and it has different sort of um, projects and orientations and and reasons that animate that justice, right? So we so that justice, I feel like, or that ethical kind of impulse was always there, and then it just takes on a different kind of course and meaning. And so that was just a chance to like reflect on um, the different angles, I suppose, in the post-colonial period um, that were not taken up in the chapters, you know, at the heart of the book. Yeah, and I think it could be the next book if you want to <laughs> entirely, yeah. Because yeah. I think, yeah, you could easily dive into each of these figures and really kind of do what you did with the other figures as well. Um, really, fantastic I know I took a lot away from it and I know our listeners will too and I'm sure the readers will pick up and have like a really interesting engagement with it um as we're wrapping up I mean is there anything that perhaps we didn't get out in the conversation or anything you want to say in terms of as a concluding point of a takeaway for the book for our listeners 
Um, I guess just, you know, just chauvinism doesn't really come up it, um, in the book, the word itself, more, more assuming normativity. Um, and so it was an interesting title term. It also seems like a little retro, you know, <laughs> like we haven't heard that term chauvinism in a while. But I think I just want to think about it as a... Um, as a as a as a perspective, right? Which is to say, you don't have to be Sunni to be Sunni chauvinistic, right? Afghani was not a, was not Sunni, he was Shia, but he had a Sunni chauvinistic position when it came to certain things. And so, um, I think that it's chauvinism can manifest itself in terms of you know ethnic chauvinism or different or different kinds of um, biases that. Um, I just wanted to highlight as more of a perspective than the literal Sunni, you know, Sunni um, theological idea. Let's put it that way, more of a perspective. I think it's a catchy title. <laughs> I think it's great. Yeah, I love it. And the cover is great as well. Um, I know this book is not even out yet. Like it's out in a couple of weeks. And so I'm I'm asking about what's next. Hopefully you'll have lots of time to celebrate and people will be engaging with this and you'll have some break, obviously. Um, but are there things you're thinking about maybe as next projects or things that you're yeah. yeah, I am. I am. I have a project underway. Um, no, I don't have a project underway. I have the seeds of a project that I'm just thinking about that I hope to start this summer. Um, and it's probably kind of in some ways a kind of continuation of some of a thread that's been running through book number one and number two, which is um, I'm really interested in the figure of um, Ali and Ali's piety, I suppose, in general, and um, the ways in which um, that that sort of, I guess what I'm calling it right now is Ali's charismatic hero, and I'm interested in the sort of porousness of the Ali devotion, devotional framework and how it moves, um, coming back to where I started in different, you know, Hindu or Muslim and different communities across uh, South Asia and the Middle East. And so I'm interested in that figure and um, the sort of different devotional frameworks and the sort of porousness of, of, of him and devotion towards him. So I'm going to be like exploring that, I think. I love that. I'm like a South Asianist at the heart too. So when I hear like stuff like that in devotional practice, I think that's amazing. I'm well, I'm excited. And um, when it comes out, hopefully we can have another chat about that as well. But uh, 10 years from now. No. Okay. Well, don't worry. We don't have to hold each other to it, but I look forward to the book when it comes out with or without having to have a conversation on the network. I'm so grateful that we got to connect. I really learned a lot hearing from you and talking about this book and, um, and I hope our listeners did as well. Thank you so much, Tina. Thank you, Shabna. Thank you for your great questions. And that was my conversation with Tina Prohet about her new book, Sunni Chauvinism and the Roots of Muslim Modernism. I hope you enjoyed it, and I hope you'll join us again next time. Until then, take care.